Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the complicated evolution of Pride Month in an era of much greater LGBTQ acceptance, and the simultaneous resurgence of anti-LGBTQ energy that in many ways mirrors the arguments of 40 years ago. Clips today are from the PBS NewsHour, It's Been a Minute, The Takeaway, Recode Media, What a Day, and Democracy Now! with additional members-only clips, including a TED Talk by Chris Southcote-Want and Charlotte's Web Thoughts. Throughout this past month, LGBTQ communities in the U.S. have been celebrating pride in cities and states around the country. Corporate America has made itself a part of that, too, by increasingly tapping into Pride Month and trying to showcase its efforts to increase diversity and inclusion. But there are concerns that Pride has lost some of its political focus and important issues are not being addressed. Lisa Desjardins has our conversation. Judy, companies not only celebrate the month, but actively market around it as well. There's a term for that, rainbow capitalism. Walmart and Target have pride-related ads. Ikea has pride-themed love seats. And Capital One Bank has this feel-good, splashy video. But for many LGBTQ individuals, it's hardly good times. Several states, including Florida, have passed new restrictions, including on transgender athletes. Hate crimes remain too frequent. Murders of trans individuals are at a new high. It's leading to questions about the purpose of Pride Month. Karen Tongson is an author and professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of Southern California. Some people might think corporations are using pride symbols more. People are putting rainbow symbols on their Twitter feeds. And they'd think that's support. But why would you say it's a, is it a concern? Well, I think we must understand that it's a gesture of support, but gestures of support, nice words, um, you know, visible images of of solidarity aren't always enough. They're often never enough, actually. And so it's not that people are angry that corporations are, you know, showing some effort at making a gesture to LGBT communities, but it's like, what backs it up? What is there behind that gesture? Is there anything substantial and material that will actually help transform the worlds that we are in and make it better for us? We're having this conversation, you and I, right now, because this is the last day of Pride Month. But what is the trade-off there? You know, we see corporations making a big effort during Pride Month, but does it last all year, or how do you think about that? Well, there are endless memes and Twitter accounts devoted to corporations in the month of June showing an image of a happy LGBT couple or person, and then uh, corporations on July 1st, which reverts back to exactly the same iconography of straight couples and business as usual. And all we hope is for sustained attention and commitment from these corporations, organizations, and anybody who expresses allyship beyond the month of June into perpetuity on our behalf. Some corporations that are doing this say we're raising awareness, and in some cases we're raising money, uh, for example, donating some of the sales that they're bringing in from LGBTQ merchandise to causes that are related. I hear you saying you want something substantial. What do you believe that corporate America should be doing? 
I think that many of us in the LGBT community are interested in a larger series of systemic changes, policy changes at every level. And, you know, some money towards maybe a popular cause here and there, sometimes uh, like marriage equality was a kind of mainstream popular cause for a period of time, isn't enough to address the deeper systemic issues that often perpetuate, uh, you know, the oppression of LGBT peoples, especially of color, those who are unhoused, trans people who are, have violence committed against them, all of the things that actually many Americans are fighting for around systemic equality, the end of white supremacy, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think LGBT folks see that they're part of a broader movement that we need to make deeper changes to our system, to our culture in order to have a more just world. We're now seeing more visible presence, more attention on different parts of the LGBT community, the transgender community, non-binary individuals, meaning people who don't identify strictly as male or female. Can you talk about the tension and the communications surrounding those groups and how they see this movement? I think that we have to consider whether or not certain groups who've attained certain privileges within that LGBT acronym uh, have to maybe consider abdicating some of their agenda in order to incorporate what would benefit the most folks under that LGBTQ plus acronym uh, and, and whether or not there's true inclusion, acceptance and understanding for trans non-binary folks and others in the community, those especially who don't share the same privileges and wealth, uh, so that we can achieve and attain a truly transformative change from our perspective. Without losing sight of the real people who are affected by this, is it possible to assess how much of this is just about pure political calculus that if you gin up a moral panic, you can win elections versus an authentic uprising of homophobia or whatever authentic might mean in that sense or of transphobia? A cynical part of me says, well, it doesn't really matter whether people really mean it or not because the outcome is sort of similar either way. But, but I actually do think moral panic is sometimes framed, you know, just as sort of people's hateful thoughts or their sort of moral error, when actually moral panic and the kind of policies we're seeing being pushed right now have actual policy goals, right? Mm. There actually is a policy strategy here, and it's one in which attacks on trans people and gay and lesbian people fit into larger right-wing politics. They're joined with attacks on, you know, abortion, uh, access, reproductive rights, uh, voting rights. You know, when we think about what it means to ban a small minority population from being able to access healthcare, life-saving healthcare, even regular healthcare, right? Part of that fits into a larger belief system about, you know, sort of a certain version of morality, but it's also just about damaging the public health care and the public good that health care is. Or when we think of, you know, for example, the don't say gay law in Florida, of course, it is a kind of moral censorship of gay, lesbian and trans people. But it also has this civil lawsuit component that is explicitly designed to damage public education in the state. So I don't know which one is the originary motive, right? Like, do people right. start passing these bills just because they're authentically homophobic and transphobic or because they dislike public education? Or is it both? But, you know, I think it's important to see that link. So I'd love for you as a historian to take a step back and give us some context for what we're seeing now, because it's not clear to me 
whether the history of marginalized groups getting rights in the United States is one of a steady, slow march forward where maybe you take two steps forward and one step back, or if it's a pendulum and like groups gain rights and then lose rights. And I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is this anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ wave that we're seeing now a historical anomaly or is it like, oh, no, this is how it goes. This is how it works in America. Like this is this is part of what we should expect every now and then. Yeah, I think it's really hard to create kind of grand narratives about rights and progress in the United States uh, because, of course, you know, we're talking about several centuries worth of history. But what is happening today and the targeting of of LGBT people in general, but especially of trans people and trans children, this is unprecedented. The, mm. the state has never explicitly named and targeted trans people as an undesirable population who should be subject not just to the withdrawal of any state support or the withdrawal of their civil rights, but explicitly targeting them for suppression, for being kicked out of the public sphere, kicked out of education, banned from accessing health care, unable to change their ID documents, and therefore pushed out of public life. And also, in some cases, punishing parents who yes. support their children. Which strikes me as shocking coming from a party that is so often about letting the family make decisions. Exactly. It's really not at all. It's about legislating particular moral point of view and enforcing it as obligatory, right? For everyone. A lot of the discrimination that trans people have faced historically was de facto, right? Of course, laws and, you know, policies were set up on the idea that there were only men and women and that people didn't necessarily cross those categories. And that caused a lot of problems for trans people. But it was never official state policy to name trans people as a minority that had to be punished for being who they were and then try to immiserate them as much as possible through every single law and policy you can think of. That had never, that's never happened before, right? And, you know, that has been to some extent the experience of gay and lesbian people when, you know, at various points in the 20th century, the federal, you know, level or certain states adopted explicit kind of heterosexuality as state policy, right? But that's something that was chipped away at in large part in the 2000s. And so we're seeing it sort of coming back. But it kind of boils down to this idea is, you know, do we think it's appropriate for state legislatures or for the federal government to legislate a state mandated sex and gender that it can force on people against their will? I think it's really, it's really disturbing when we, when we sort of slow down and ask like, well, what does that mean for everyone? Because, yeah. you know, if a state can compel a trans child to take away their bodily autonomy, then it's going to reinforce their ability to take away the bodily autonomy of people who might need access to abortion, right? Or any medical procedure, birth control, right? Uh, you know, other kinds of rights that we you know, might take for granted. I'd love for you to weigh in on the language in this debate, because we hear supporters of these laws accusing their opponents of grooming young people. And in the 1970s, people like the anti-gay activist Anita Bryant we're using that kind of language. She would argue that since gay people can't biologically reproduce, LGBTQ people would have to recruit children. I have been blacklisted for exercising the right of a mother to defend her children and all children against their being recruited by homosexuals. And then some four decades later, we hear similar arguments 
from Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. The Democrats are the party of pedophiles. The Democrats are the party of, of teachers, uh, elementary school teachers trying to trying to transition their elementary school age children and convince them they're a different gender. What do you make of the fact that this language has just boomeranged back into public discourse? It's incredibly chilling. I mean, this is extremist language. I think part of the boomerang really did come from QAnon and far-right groups, um, including white supremacist groups. I wondered about that, whether it was like the conspiracy theory about child abuse that fed into the mainstream in this way. Exactly. QAnon folks and far-right and white supremacist groups started allying openly with anti-trans groups. And this, you know, that I actually think is this explicit origin of why we're seeing this language folded back into the public sphere. But, you know, as you pointed out, it has a long history. I mean, they're actually so wildly, easily debunkable. They're such extreme, unverifiable kinds of claims that, you know, I think part of how we have to understand them is that they're not even attempts to make truth claims, right? I don't really care if any of these people believe this or not. Probably some of them don't. I think what we really have to remember, though, is that when you dehumanize a small minority of people by calling their existence, their existence per se as a form of sexual predation, what you're doing is making them disposable, punishable, Right. And sometimes killable populations. That is the sort of tactic that it has been used for in the past. In some ways, Anita Bryant was the most respectable version of this because she didn't call for, you know, gay people to be necessarily all rounded up and killed. But it doesn't take, you know, too far of a kind of um, journey down this rhetorical extremist rabbit hole to get to that place. And certainly I think a lot of trans advocates and public figures, myself included, have seen an uptick in death threats arriving you know, in our inboxes and in our replies online. So I think this escalation of language actually really does have a, a verifiable origin in the way that QAnon politics have gone mainstream on the right and in the Republican Party. But um, um, but on the other hand, right, it's sort of drawing on this really vicious history, right, that clearly has still been sort of in people's repertoires, right? You know, Anita Bryant may no longer be a public figure, but clearly a lot of people still have access to those kinds of really violent homophobic and transphobic tropes. You know, we've been talking about the sort of outlook right now in which trans and LGBTQ people more broadly are playing defense, trying to block legislation. I'd like to end by asking you to imagine a different scenario where life is safe and supportive for trans young people. What would that look like? I mean, like, what would need to happen? What would that situation be? Paint a picture of that for us. If you begin from the premise that there's nothing inferior or bad or wrong about being trans, then you don't really need to know anything else to know that, you know, trans people in your life are valuable Trans people have plenty of gifts to bring the world. And by being locked into these cycles of reaction, we're being deprived of, you know, the chance to live meaningful lives. And I say this all the time, but for me, you know, having gone through the experience, like so many other trans people, of having to figure out without any resources or language in life who I was and figure out how to say yes to what I needed to live in the world as a happy, well-adjusted person has given me a kind of empathy that I bring to, you know, how I relate to all people that I meet, you know, in every walk of life. And I think that, you know, when we think of sort of the positive terrain 
uh, that trans politics can bring us to, it comes down to some really powerful insights, which are what if we, you know, work to create a world in which everyone had the resources they need, not just to survive, but to live happy lives, to explore their potential, right? What if we said that everyone deserves to go to school? Everyone deserves to have access to healthcare. Everyone deserves to be able to imagine, you know, achieving things in their lives that surprise and reward them, you know, for following their hopes and dreams. I think those are stories that trans people understand on a really deep, deep level in our bones because we've had to, but those are enduring messages that connect us to so many kinds of other people. As a lover of audio, I also love audiobooks. And now, not only do I love the books, but I love the company I buy them from, because Libro has changed the game. Before, I would have ended up buying a book from one of the internet giants because I wouldn't have known where else to go. But then a few years ago, Bookshop.org came along. You may have heard of them. They're a certified B Corp dedicated to funneling profits from online sales of print-on-paper books to local brick-and-mortar bookshops. You tell them who your local bookshop is, and that shop gets a cut of each of your orders. Pretty clever, right? Now, Libro is working in partnership with Bookshop.org and doing the exact same thing, but for audiobooks. It is not an exaggeration to say that I was genuinely excited when I discovered Libro and signed up immediately in a please-take-my-money sort of fashion. And like other online audiobook sellers you may have heard of, owned by a very wealthy person who's notorious for sort of having tried to drive local bookstores out of business, you can sign up for a monthly membership at Libro to get one free audiobook credit each month and a big discount on any other books you purchase. But fear not, no membership is required at all if you prefer one-off purchases. For details and to support this show with any purchase you make, go to bestofleft.com slash Libro. That's bestofleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. Meanwhile, if books made of trees are actually more your thing, try bestofleft.com slash bookshop. Jody Nicole was just walking us through some of the challenges of corporate sponsorship. And, and you know, corporations like MasterCard, Delta, Chase, Target, they, they're, they're just one like small fraction of corporate sponsors. And I guess there's a part of me that thinks, don't we prefer to have major corporations publicly stating support, you know, rather than what could clearly be, right, sort of a, on the other side of this. Talk to me a bit about this. I mean, I think I agree with many of Jody's points. I think that there has been this enormous corporatization of pride and that that has really had some detrimental effects in terms of pricing out nonprofit groups and other community groups that really just can't afford floats um, and so on. Well, actually, pause yeah. right there for a second. Just for folks who may not, you know, we're, we're broadcast all over the country. For folks who maybe haven't gone, what do you mean priced out floats? What, is, what are you talking about here? Well, for instance, in New York City, it costs many thousands of dollars to have a float in Pride. And the more money um, a company puts forward, the further forward they get in the parade. And so what happens is that there are these huge corporate um, floats from, you know, Jody mentioned AT&T, Toyota, Procter & Gamble, all of these people with these huge decorative floats and then straggling um, at the back are all of the people who can't afford to, to buy their place at the front of the parade. 
Um, and because these parades now are getting really big and really long, um, you know, it's maybe many hours before uh, community groups actually get to sort of walk down the main uh, site of the parade. And so really aren't getting the visibility that they may have got in a, in a less funded situation. And I, and I would assume would get them in the Reclaim Pride um, event that's happening on the same day. Uh, God, that makes perfect sense to me, right? So, Jody Nicole, jump in here for me on this because, again, I, I presume you're not saying, you know, we're hoping that these corporations stand in resistance to us, right? But but this point, right, being made that it sort of actually push it literally pushes to the back of the line, grassroots-based organizations, it, that that's really pretty compelling to me. Yes, yes. And so, you know, to even kind of, further clarify what I was touching on before, right? For me, I'm I'm a type of person where I actually do believe in radical wealth redistribution, right? Mm. And so let's say that any individual within any of these corporations, or even perhaps the corporations as an entity, wanted to be providing tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in more meaningful ways to our communities, that would be one thing, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of saying, okay, like, here's some money. But really what we have seen historically is kind of what what's being mentioned, right? It's not a situation of, okay, here's $10,000, right? Here's $50,000. It's a situation of here is this funding, right? As kind of like a dangling carrot. And then these are all the things that we are going to either explicitly or codedly imply that need to be done to be able to continue receiving this. And that's kind of, that's more so the problem. It's not necessarily inherently the passing off of the money itself, but the ways in which that is then wielded as a problematic power dynamic, right? And really a tactic of manipulation, because then like I was mentioning, there are demands that, for example, Reclaim Pride Coalition and the tens of thousands of people that have marched in the Queer Liberation March in previous years, there are demands that we have, not only of capitalist corporations, but also of elected officials, right? And so there really comes a point where the contradictions start to emerge, because it isn't only so much about the money, but the reality is, I think, you know, we kind of as adults know how society functions, like these corporations are not, they're not being as benevolent and altruistic as they want us to believe. Catherine, I want to bring you in as well. I hear sort of um, from Judy Nicole at least two different, uh, or, or at least two interlocking, uh, intersecting concerns. Right? One is um, one that's also been discussed, for example, in the context of October Breast Cancer Month. This kind of pink washing, um, we might call, you know, this sort of corporate sponsorship, but lavender washing or, or rainbow washing. Right? This idea that just by um, using the symbols of or doing sort of these symbolic things, it, it keeps um, uh, meaningful reinvestment or, or, or meaningful work um, of the corporations, right? Making, you know, kind of sustaining um, contributions to community-based organizations, right? Rather than just being afloat in the parade. But the other, right, concern I hear is this idea that that money is flowing in both directions, right? Both to the symbols of pride, but also to the public policies that make LGBTQIA plus resistance necessary. Can you walk us through some of that, Dr. Sender? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what we can look at as a, in terms of the sort of history of sponsorship of Pride, it used to be that corporations would advertise at Pride and Pride parades as a way of kind of being under the radar. They hoped that if they did this kind of very specific event-based marketing, they wouldn't get the attention of the religious conservatives and the and the right-wing politicians. I mean, that, that never actually quite happens. But that was the fantasy, that the, that the biggest risk was getting boycotted by um, the evangelicals. What's happened since the, around the t- early 2000s is that the tide has really changed. And now what companies are really worried about is looking um, uncommitted, inauthentic, um, and and doing this rainbow washing thing. And so marketers who advise corporations who want to get into um, the LGBTQ market say that they have to be sustained through the whole year, not just um, June and not just the parade, but that they have to have consistent messaging through the whole year, um, that they have to include LGBTQ people in their um, creation of their campaigns. Um, in effect, that actually usually means um, <laughs> the G and the L in there. Um, a, a more diversity behind um, these campaigns is, is more unusual. Um, that they have to recognize the diversity and intersectionality of LGBTQ consumers. Um, so we're seeing much more mixed, uh, um, racially complex representations in, in marketing. And also that they have to um, have these corporate relationships with nonprofit groups to sort of signal a kind of real commitment to the com- community. Um, that said, most of those nonprofits are, are sort of fairly uncontroversial. I mean, still important, but they tend to be around um, youth and uh, media visibility and things like that. Um, the point Jody makes about um, basically talking out of two sides of their mouth, you know, mm-hmm. giving corporate sponsorship, but also then sponsoring right-wing politicians is really a big deal. And one of the things that really sort of gives me hope is that social media is so effective now in really calling out corporations who, you know, are demonstrably being cynical and hypocritical. And um, that really has has yielded quite a lot of backlash. So both AT&T, for instance, and um, and Toyota have been called out for, you know, giving money to uh, particularly state-based politicians. Um, and this is this is because those right-wing politicians are more likely to give these companies tax breaks. And so what that then means is that the money that might come from corporate taxes to help support mm-hmm. the most vulnerable people in those states, including LGBT people and people of color, don't come through. And so um, it has those kinds of corporate decisions has very real impact on LGBTQ people's lives. Let's turn back the clock a little bit to the mid-1990s. When Disney started providing uh, partner benefits to gay and lesbian employees, the Southern Baptist Convention announced this giant boycott because this was terrible. Also, this is around the time that um, Disney, I believe this is part of uh, around the time of the giant merger in which technically Disney was owned the parent company, owned the company that made like Pulp Fiction. And so the Southern Baptist Convention was very upset about this. So... There really is for Disney a damned if you do, damned if you don't type moment because 
now you are seeing, especially again, this goes with the messaging creep that meant that I was talking about, where you see Breitbart putting out articles that were like, oh, this grooming material. And all they're listing are just examples of gay people being in Disney stuff. I wanna, Not even I wanna, doing I wanna, anything. I want to spell spell out the the, the grooming stuff because this has now become this is what I wanted to talk another part of this I wanted to talk to you about was this. Right. Disney has now become uh, Fox News in particular, but but a lot of the right wing media um, is now going all in on attacking Disney. Not for n- initially it was they're too woke, and now it's they are they are pro grooming. Explain what that is supposed to mean. What grooming actually is is, and I think that there have been some very brave people who have talked about their own experiences of childhood sexual abuse, in which someone um, you know you have. An older person, someone you know, who essentially grooms you to be easier to manipulate for the purposes of sexual abuse. This is a large part of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Right, exactly. That, like, attempting to break down barriers here. Now, what these people are appearing to argue is that depict that they don't actually mean sexual abuse at all. They mean something very different. And I think that it, it, it's really worth getting at what they are actually saying. So I'm going to quote here um, from a conservative writer, Rod Dreher, who's been very into this. And so he says, no, 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 this has nothing to do with being a sexual predator. It says, <clears throat> I think it is coming to have a somewhat broader meaning. An adult who wants to separate children from a normative gen- sexual and gender identity to inspire confusion in them and to turn them against their parents and all the normative traditions and institutions of society. It may not specifically be to groom them for sexual activity, but it is certainly to groom them to take on a sexual gender identity at odds with the norm, which there are a lot so of we're not saying we're that. not saying that you, the teacher, are necessarily going to uh, abuse right, your children. But You're opening the door to to gate them and sort right. of pushing them through the door. Exactly, and obviously, one that's not what anyone thinks of when they hear the term grooming. What you, what everyone is hearing is, oh. Teachers are all pedophiles, and you're seeing David Mamet making that argument on Fox News, which this news cycle has gone straight to hell. But again, the idea here is that one, per Rod Dreher and some conservatives, is that if you are gay or lesbian or trans, it is because at some point you weren't, and then something happened. And the idea here, one is that there's no such thing as a gay kid or a trans kid. It's just like, they would have been normal until an adult told them not to be normal. And I think that that gets at, that's why there's been such messaging creep, is that we're going back to this awful Save Our Children, Anita Bryant, late 1970s idea that like, oh, the only way you get a homosexual is through a recruitment. That you can't be gay unless something happens. Something, you, you, is, fell, you fell into the gay swamp like Briar Rabbit. This is the Rabbit. same... This is the same Republican Party that had Peter Thiel speak, first openly gay uh, right. speaker at the RNC convention um, five years ago now. Has has something shifted in Republican politics where they, after after being really anti-gay for a long time, they've sort of tolerated it and now have rethought it? Is this uh, a marginal group in Republican politics? Are we conflating a bunch of things where you've got people in Brooklyn and Berkeley saying, 
a lot of trans kids in my kids' public school, and that's different. I don't know how I feel about that. And then also at the other end of the spectrum, you're courting QAnon by uh, making references to pedophilia, and and you're winking and nodding, and you know exactly what you're I mean, doing. Is it or I, it's uh, what, it's, what is kind actually of a, happening? I think we're kind of in a yes and moment. You know, we're having there are more conversations about gender identity. There is an increasing number of people who appear to be identifying as LGBT. Granted, those growth of numbers is largely with my people, bisexual people. And also, I, I remain unclear. I, I was talking to a conservative writer a couple days ago, which is like, well, then what would be the accurate number of LGBT people? Like, the implication here is that there is the right number, and then there are too many people who appear to be have given in mm-hmm. to, quote-unquote, social contagion. And so I think that this is this is a moment in which you had kind of a center-right view that gender identity discussions were going too far, coupled with the belief that this was an example of social contagion. But then you have the social conservatives who were like, no, 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 we didn't, like, we weren't mad about Obergefell. We've been mad for the last seven years about that. And now they have come back with a vengeance by making these arguments that are like, no, 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 like, now we're mad about gay teachers all of a sudden. We're mad about gay people writ large. And you're seeing this in um, specific quotes from figures like Charlie Kirk uh, from The Turning Point, who is saying that, like, oh, we gave them marriage, but that wasn't enough, and now they want your kids. Which I'm like, again, straight up, it's 1978 all over again. Let, let's role play for a second. Let's say you are Bob Chapek. You run Disney. You have a giant business, beloved brand. Your business is contingent on getting people all around the world, all around America to consume your content and then also to come to your theme parks and go on your cruises. You cannot afford to have a large swath of the population hate you or be worried about you. You employ plenty of people who are who are gay, um, LGBTQ. Um, how do you navigate this? I, I understand the impulse to sit this one out. Apparently you can't. So what do you do? I mean, I think that you have to do what Disney would always do, which is you wait it out. And it, it's interesting because we just saw that um, there was news, this is obviously a dip, different company, that um, a potential gay plot line involved in the upcoming um, Harry Potter extended universe movie is being removed in China. And you see a lot of conservatives were very upset about that. And then I'm like, but you want these same plot lines removed in movies shown in America. So it's like, you'll never be We don't want you to be soft on China when it comes to gays. Right, exactly. And so I think that what, I mean, if I were Disney, I would say, hello, I am a massive, powerful corporation. Your boycott efforts have historically never really worked out. Because you are the same people who are not quite aware that Disney owns like ESPN. And so if you're watching Monday Night Baseball, correct, you are, you, you are enjoying a Disney production. Um, but I think what they will do is essentially wait it out because the Disney Corporation is well aware that they can just keep on keeping on and there'll be something else. There will always be something else. But what gets me is that the Disney Corporation They are not the victims here. They are a very powerful corporation that will also excise any LGBT content for any reason. And that's why in many cases, in a lot of movies, if there is like a gay kiss in passing, it'll happen in a scene that's non-essential. So it can be easily cut for audiences in other countries. It's the same way that like, if you are doing a movie that predominantly features black people and you want to do it in China, you rearrange the movie poster to make all the black people Mm -hmm. go away. Like, 
I'm aware of how corporations actually work, but I think that the risk here, again, is that this is an intended to target teachers and target LGBT people. And there are going to be a host of teachers and people in- involved in schools who are going to be forced to pay thousands of dollars in court fees so that at some point, some circuit judge somewhere will finally say what this bill is supposed to do. My friends over at The New Republic have a podcast. It's called The Politics of Everything, and it explores the intersection of culture, politics, and media in bi-weekly interviews with scholars and journalists. Recently, they did a great episode looking behind the scenes of the fight between Disney and Florida over the Don't Say Gay bill and Florida Republicans' decision to strip Disney of their special self-governance carve-out. They dug deeper than I had heard anyone else go to explain how Disney got that deal in the first place, and then used the whole scenario to explore the sort of eternal struggle of self-governance between the divided powers, designed by democracy, and the arguably, air quotes, easier method of centralized power that, of course, a corporation would prefer. And that is why they call it the politics of everything. The show's hosts are The New Republic's literary editor, Laura Marsh, and contributing writer, Alex Perrine. And you can find the politics of everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So check that out. I want to play you a clip of Sylvia Rivera talking about the Pride movement as an example. For those who don't know, Sylvia Rivera is one of the legendary names we cite of folks who helped pave the way for the LGBTQ plus rights movement. She died in 2002, but here she is in this clip speaking to activist Christy Tomas in June 2001. This movement has become so capitalist. It is a capitalist movement. I see this movement becoming a straight gay movement that only believes in that almighty dollar. Yeah, wow. So now, as I mentioned, what I find interesting about Sylvia's critique is that 20 years ago, right, is when she was saying this. And now Mm -hmm. folks say similar things today about the ways that capitalism and corporations have inserted and asserted themselves during this month in particular. So I got a chance to talk about this yesterday with one of my peers, Franz Harado, their host of the podcast Like a Virgin, and a longtime writer for LGBTQ plus entertainment and media. And I first asked Asked if compared to two decades ago, it now feels like it's more apparent when companies say they're for LGBTQ plus rights, but then work with those trying to erode them. If we had been seeing pride campaigns two decades ago, like a lot of times, like maybe you or I would say, oh, this is, you know, really nice. It's good to see a little rainbow logo. But now that like LGBTQ marketing is no longer the exception, but the standard All these brands are doing it, and therefore all of us are kind of waking up to the very exploitative and often kind of gross or insidious nature of a lot of these corporate initiatives. According to the Pride Corporate Accountability Project from this progressive think tank called Data for Progress, major companies like a Toyota, like an AT&T, they're painting themselves as allies for the community while also simultaneously giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to anti-LGBTQ campaigns. 
Could you talk a little bit about what is particularly concerning about examples like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a conversation I have to have constantly. I sometimes consult for brands helping them do LGBTQ marketing, which is not a job I love, but a job that pays the bills. (laughs) And I constantly have to say that if you want to do a pride campaign or if you want to do a queer initiative in your marketing of any kind, first up, you're capitalizing on marginalized identities. So you better pay us very well. But two, Mm -hmm. your campaign is worth nothing if your brand does not stand behind the values that you claim to. And I think that Disney is a great example. I think Netflix is a really great example because Netflix was on the forefront of trans representation Mm -hmm. and what played a big part in what a lot of people call the trans tipping point of media, though I know not everyone kind of agrees with that term of the trans tipping point. And yet Netflix, having given tons of trans people jobs, platforming trans people to do all of that and then have these Ricky Gervais specials, these Dave Chappelle specials where trans people are not just the butt of the jokes, but like violence is incited against us on this platform. It just completely throws everything else out the window for us consuming some things on Netflix. Like it just changed the relationship to the brand entirely. And you know, their stock prices mm-hmm. saw the repercussions. Definitely. Definitely. I'm wondering though, if you could share for the folks in our audience who might want to get activated about some of these contradictions, what do you see as some of the most effective ways to like put these companies both on blast for their contradictions, but also on notice that these types of efforts and contradictions aren't something that the community is interested in participating in? You know, I have a kind of rubric by which I grade um, pride campaigns and the values aligning with like your actions as a company is like a really important part of that. But also like you have to have a nonprofit partnership where a hundred percent of the proceeds or a sizable donation or a substantive contribution to that LGBTQ organization is, you know, something big. And it has to be, I think, a meaningful organization like Trans Law Center or Immigration Equality, as opposed to those like NGO giants like Human Rights Campaign. I also say that like you need to have community perspective, right? Like queer and trans people, if those are the people you're trying to reach, need to be in the room when you're making decisions about this kind of marketing campaign. I would love to hear if there are ever any examples of corporate pride that are good, that are positive for the community? I wouldn't say, you know, good, but I would say in terms of checking all the boxes, Mm -hmm. I think that there was this campaign with Lyft where they made in-product adjustments one year so that app writers could put their pronouns into the app and avoid getting misgendered by their drivers. I mean, similarly, like there was a MasterCard campaign where it's like, you don't have to use your dead name on the card. You can just put your chosen name. Mm -hmm. It's like hard to give accolades to like a credit card company. But like, I think that in-product big swings like that, things that actually 
create positive change in LGBTQ lives are things that I really want to see. Google created a living monument that basically archived a huge history of LGBTQ like work and art and all that stuff in a portal that would like live online in addition to giving $1.5 million to New York's um, LGBTQ center. Things like that that really invest in our communities. But again, all the companies I just named are evil in some way and and have demonstrable (laughs) evil in their histories. So it's hard to give accolades. But again, like this is just the world we live in. So if you're going to do it, like I want to see that you're doing it right. Yeah, we've heard commentary from folks about the ways that this rainbow washing, right, which is what we're talking about, has also had some quote unquote positive impact in terms of representation and visibility internationally in particular. Mm. I'm wondering if you see that as a potential positive effect for those countries where, you know, being LGBTQ is criminalized at all. Yes, I I definitely see that. I live in a metropolis area. I'm spoiled rotten and I feel a lot more safe than the average LGBTQ person in this world. And even beyond like international audiences, like people in the middle of our country, people in the South, Mm -hmm. it can be as hard to be queer in the deep South Mm -hmm. as it is in international countries. I get very salty. I, I always say like, like, I don't want to give flowers to a company that's doing the bare minimum. But that's not always true with really, really small companies, you know, like yeah. really small companies where this is like all they can do is like put up a rainbow flag. Like if you're a small business and that's what you do, that means something to somebody. And I'm not going to ever poo poo that. Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow made national headlines after she responded to an attack by her Republican colleague Lana Thies, who accused McMorrow in a fundraising appeal of, quote, grooming and sexualizing kindergartners. They also accused Morrow of seeking to teach that, quote, eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. This is Senator McMorrow's full response from the Michigan Senate floor Tuesday. Thank you, Mr. President. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized, because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme, because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. 
My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at Mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment or that healthcare costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. That 
was Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow in a speech in the state Senate in Michigan, now viral. Um, it, she gave that speech on Tuesday after being accused by a fellow state legislator of, quote, grooming kindergartners for her views. Meanwhile, in Missouri, the state House has approved a bill to allow school districts to vote on whether to ban trans student athletes from youth sports. The Republican lawmaker who proposed the amendment, State Representative Chuck Basie, said it was to save women's sports. A gay Missouri lawmaker, Ian Mackey, confronted Basie in a floor speech that also went viral, comparing the anti-trans bill to his own experience as a queer student growing up. I was afraid of people like you growing up, and I grew up in Hickory County, Missouri. I grew up in a school district that would vote tomorrow to put this in place. And for 18 years, I walked around with nice people like you, who took me to ball games, who told me how smart I was, and who went to the ballot and voted for crap like this. And I couldn't wait to get out. I couldn't wait to move to a part of our state that would reject this stuff in a minute. I couldn't wait. And thank God I made it. Thank God I made it out. And I think every day of the kids who are still there, who haven't made it out, who haven't escaped from this kind of bigotry. Gentlemen, I'm not afraid of you anymore because you're going to lose. You may win this today, but you're going to lose. That's gay Missouri lawmaker Ian Mackey. But before all that, it was Florida's Don't Say Gay bill that prompted our guest today, Florida State Senator Shervin Jones, the state's first gay senator, to speak out against the measure on Florida State Senate floor in Tallahassee last month. Just imagine living your life for 30 years and you coming to your parents and and you're talking about who you are, and you're lying to them about who you are. I never wanted to disappoint my dad. And I even told him to watch this today. I don't think y'all understand that even rerunning for office, it was, it was difficult because people calling your names, people saying things to you. And all you want to do is serve. I never knew that living my truth would, uh, would cause church members to leave my dad's church. Or friends to stop talking to me. Or families to make jokes about who you are. In my heart, I don't believe any of you in here, my colleagues, many of who I've known for years. I believe that we all want to do right. And I, but it seems as if politics has, we have gone down a road to where we're scared to just step out to make sure we're not hurting people. 
Yes, that's our guest today, Florida State Senator Chevron Jones, Florida's first openly gay state senator. Last week, Republican Florida Governor DeSantis signed into law a measure approved by the Republican state lawmakers to rescind Disney World's self-governing status after he and his allies blasted Disney for opposing the so-called Don't Say Gay law, as we continue with State Senator Chevron Jones. Um, if you could first elaborate, I mean, the power of your speech, the your personal speaking from the heart um, of what it meant for you to grow up um, uh, with uh, in your um, father's household and what it meant to then be voting with the legislators um, that challenge your identity. You know, Amy, I, I wanted to convey a message to my colleagues that um, that I wasn't a hypothetical because that was what they were speaking on uh, in in the chambers. Everything uh, was hypothetically speaking, hypothetically speaking. And I wanted to make it clear that, you know, I'm a member of this body. I sit in these chambers uh, with you and I wanted to be clear to them that I have a story that's behind this uh, and this person that you see right now. And I wanted to share that. I, I was raised in a very conservative uh, household. My dad's a pastor of a very large congregation. My mom was a principal at a school. Um, and I wanted to ensure to them uh, that I was raised in a good home because there was this this tone that these children who are who are gay, which by the bill sponsor said that um, that many of them come from broken household or saying that teachers are socially engineering children. I wasn't socially engineered. I was loved inside my household. And I wanted to know I want them to know that I was neither of what they were trying to convey. Uh, but this is who I am. Uh, that's and, and that's who I wanted to convey to not just them. It was to those young people who were outside. You, Amy, you could hear them outside chanting and crying and chanting and crying. Uh, and I don't know what it would have felt like to be a 13, 14, 15 year old standing outside to do that because I just didn't have that type of courage at the time. But I have the courage now to stand up to bullies um, that who are doing this type of things to a, a generation of young people where young people are four times more likely uh, to LGBTQ youth are four times more likely to commit suicide, not because of who they are, but because of how they're treated. And you have to stand up to bullies. And that was the one way that I was going to. And we must continue to do that all across this country. We've just heard clips today, starting with the PBS NewsHour explaining rainbow capitalism. It's been a minute, looked at the surge of anti-trans legislation and 70s-style anti-LGBTQ arguments. The Takeaway discussed corporations donating to pro-LGBTQ causes and anti-LGBTQ politicians. Recode Media looked at the case of Disney under attack from both sides of the debate. What a Day looked at the long-running unease between the LGBTQ community and big corporations, and Democracy Now! featured three noteworthy speeches of politicians fighting back. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips, one from Chris Southcott-Want giving a TEDx talk about what companies really need to do to be good allies to the community. The businesses that I work for that are amazing and inclusive 
are the ones that break down barriers so it isn't about us and them, it's about all of us. The ones that put up rainbow flags, not to tick a diversity box, but to amplify the voice of every individual in that business. And Charlotte's Web Thoughts discussed the incident of State Farm, the insurance company, bending to pressure from anti-LGBTQ hashtag activists. I didn't take much notice when State Farm started trending on Twitter from the relentless propaganda and shitposting by anti-LGBTQ extremists. Then came news early that evening of an emergency email sent by State Farm's chief diversity officer to all employees announcing that the company would no longer support the program. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email to request a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, I want to tell you some thoughts I was having as I was learning about the recycling of 1970s anti-LGBTQ talking points around recruiting, what they now call grooming, what have you. I got thinking about an idea I've been kicking around recently, which is that it seems like every successive generation needs to relearn so much of what past generations themselves had to learn as though that information couldn't be passed along. I mean, this may be because some lessons can only be learned through experience. It could be that we're bad at telling stories about these sort of lessons learned so that younger generations simply grow up with them built in. Maybe it's a complicated issue having to do with shifting baseline syndrome, or it could be all of the above or something else I'm not thinking of. Anyway, A good example of this is that the personal is political, which is really just another way of clarifying that structural forces are at play rather than everyone being individually responsible for circumstances they find themselves in. I feel like a lot of people are learning that lesson now and sort of over the last decade or so, but it's an idea from feminists in the 1960s and 70s who themselves, I'm sure, were just relearning that same idea that had probably been around long before them. I I mean, actually, I know it was, though I'm not sure if this is what inspired the feminists. Racism used to not be seen as an individual dislike or disdain of a person based on their race. There used to be a much more widespread understanding of the systemic nature of racism before there was maybe even arguably an accidental shift to the personal bad thoughts framing of racism that we know and love today. So those are some things that we seem to need to keep relearning. But then there's also the complicating factors of actual progress being made on one hand, and the phenomenon known as shifting baseline syndrome. That's the idea that you consider anything you grow up with to be normal. That's your baseline, but that baseline shifts generation to generation. So it's really, really difficult to appreciate all the progress that was made before you came around, which is not great, but it may also be easier to have loftier aspirations for the future because you don't have as much of that baggage of the past weighing you down. Or like we heard today, there was a time when LGBTQ activists would have been deeply grateful to any corporation who was willing to do some rainbow washing, put up a flag, whatever. 
But now that's the baseline. The baseline has shifted, and people are beginning to realize that it's time to demand a whole lot more than just that. So I've mentioned general feminism, racism, LGBTQ. So here's the last one that I think sort of caps it off and and brings this all together nicely. Free speech. We're in the middle of another new round of debate over free speech and what that means exactly. Is it the freedom to say something? Or is it the freedom to say something without consequence? And what do we mean by consequence? Now, for context, in the bonus show that we just recorded that hasn't been released yet, we discussed uh, George Carlin a bit. There was an HBO documentary that came out about him and a New York Times article. So we were talking about those sorts of things. And Carlin came up in comedy during a time that the police would arrest comics based on what they said on stage if the government deemed it inappropriate. And we're not talking, you know, inciting violence here. And so his views, Carlin's views, and the views of many in that generation were largely shaped by that form of extreme censorship of speech. The fight for free speech was literally the fight to not be arrested for what you wanted to say in public just because the government decided to. So here's where shifting baseline syndrome and genuine progress get sort of mixed together in a confusing stew. On one hand, younger generations don't have that institutional memory of government censorship of comedians, and so we see the entire debate over speech very differently. But it's because that past battle was fought and won by the generations that came before. Thank you very much. So it it could be dangerous, honestly, as a society, to lose a healthy fear of overbearing government censorship, because that is the sort of thing that can spiral out of control and has here and elsewhere in the past. But on the other hand, it can be dangerous to get stuck in the arguments of the past, thinking that any social consequence for speech is a step down the terrible road to extinguishing free speech altogether. These days, people bring up Carlin constantly as a warrior for freedom of speech. But the war that he was fighting was fundamentally different in many ways from the debate over speech we're having today. So much so that one really doesn't map well onto the other. And it's entirely possible that Carlin would have different views on the current situation and our speech debate than he did on the state of speech 30 years ago. In fact, it would be ridiculous if he didn't. Which brings us to the fight of the day, which is between tolerance and intolerance. Free speech advocates sort of argue, mostly mindlessly, that the only thing we need to combat destructive, intolerant, hateful speech is more speech. And progressives find themselves in a a bit of a trap of their own making being used against them. We're told that, one, if we want the freedom to say what we believe, then everyone else needs to have the same right. And two, if we are intolerant of intolerance, then we're terrible hypocrites, which, I mean, might sort of hurt our feelings, but also makes us stop and think that maybe they're right. If our ideology of tolerance is correct, and we believe that it is, 
then maybe we do need to be tolerant of intolerance we find ourselves grappling with. But speaking of lessons that need to be relearned over and over through time, enter philosopher Karl Popper in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, who has some thoughts on what he calls the paradox of intolerance, posing the question, should a tolerant society tolerate intolerance? Popper answers, no, and then explains that it is a paradox, but unlimited tolerance can lead to the extinction of tolerance. When we extend tolerance to those who are openly intolerant, the tolerant ones end up being destroyed, and tolerance along with them. Any movement that preaches intolerance and persecution must, Popper argues, be outside the law. As paradoxical as it may seem, defending tolerance requires us to not tolerate the intolerant. You got that? And remember it next time you see the accusation that progressives are not following their own credo of tolerance by not being tolerant of the intolerance of the right. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes, and particularly to Dion for really nailing it on the title for today's episode. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, videos, books, whatever you like. Links to join the community are in the show notes. And a reminder that I'm always on the lookout for any kind of recommendations you have of any of those things I just mentioned, podcasts, articles, videos, etc. We use them to help inspire new episodes of the show. We talk about them on Discord and generally have a good time and appreciate anyone who, who takes the time to send those in. So thanks in advance for doing that. And coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.